Hey everyone, this is episode three of season two of Achieve Great Things. Thanks for tuning in. This week we talk with Joshua Labari, who's a partner at Lake Research Partners. He worked with um, a lot of the candidates in Virginia last year, so we have a conversation about their work in Virginia and, and also, more importantly, what we all can learn as communicators from the victories in Virginia last year. So we hope you enjoy it. We hope you enjoy this season so far. We're going to talk a lot more about lessons learned in 2017 and also move, of course, toward where we go for 2018. So we appreciate you listening. Please send thoughts, feedback, comments. You can reach us on Facebook. You can email us podcast at hadaway.com or you can reach us on Twitter at hadawaycom, C-O-M-M. Thanks again. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Look forward to hearing feedback and hope you enjoy this conversation with Josh. All right, I'm here with Josh Ulibari. Uh Josh is a partner at Lake Research Partners. Uh, welcome, Josh. Thanks for joining the podcast. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and Josh and I worked together on a project. I think we determined we we ended the project, what, three or four four years ago, probably. So it's been a while. It's been two cycles. The yeah. whole president. <laughs> right. Totally different circumstances. Um, so, Josh, just for people who aren't familiar, can you just give a quick intro about what your uh, background is and how you got where you are? Sure. So, uh, Josh Uliberry, I'm a partner at Lake Research Partners. We're a Democratic and progressive polling firm. Uh, so we do public opinion research, we do surveys, we do focus groups online, in person, all of that. Um, I am uh, a partner in the firm, as I said, and I have, uh, I do uh, political candidates, I do issue work, and I help candidates win races, and I have, I help issue campaigns uh, and issue teams, uh, you know, push their issue forward and advocate for the people they're, they're trying to fight for. And I have most recently in 2017, I was the pollster for the Virginia House Democratic Caucus, uh, where we just had that ex- historic year picking up 15 seats and almost winning, almost pulling even uh, in terms of yeah. the legislature. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we got reconnected. Um, and I didn't realize that you had done the, the polling and the research for, for so many of those races. And that's why we wanted to talk to you. And I mean, in the in the grand scheme of things, Virginia was a huge huge bright spot and a pretty good year for progressive communications, right? I mean, maybe one of the best in terms of what we learned and what we saw. Mm-hmm. I think it was fantastic. I mean, we have so I've been the pollster for them since 2015, <clears throat> and in that time, we picked up 17 seats, and we have elected 14 new women. We've elected uh, the first two Latinas, the first two Asian women, the first transgender woman, the first uh, out lesbian. So it's just been a historic uh, three years and two election cycles. And I think there are a lot of things that, um, you know, we learned, uh, you know, our, our elections in November. So we had learned from other special elections up until then. And I think there's lots of things we've been sharing since then that new campaigns coming into cycle this year have been learning and picking up on. So it's been a great sort of way for us to trade information and learn from each other. And I, I'm really happy to do this podcast and other conversations so that um, what I've learned gets out to help progressives um, push back and, and uh, do what they need to do for people. Yeah, and, and you put together a three-part um, series on LinkedIn in December about the Virginia um, legislative elections, and we'll link to those because they're really comprehensive and really in-depth and um, really good stuff to read even now, several months later. So, you know, as you know, the the point of this podcast is to try to Arm progressive communicators with insights and, and ideas they can use to, to do their work more effectively. So 
hopefully people listening are, are already thinking about, you know, their issues, whether it's, you know, from philanthropy or advocacy or, or political um, perspectives, you know, how can we communicate more effectively with people? So I know you did a, you have a ton of uh, takeaways. Maybe we could just start from kind of the top few takeaways that you have on, on why, um, or, or I guess what we did well in terms of communi- communicating that can be applied elsewhere. Yeah, so, and I think uh, I'll give you just a, a quick one or two minute sort of background in terms of um, the, the kinds of things that were happening in Virginia that are happening nationally that I think communicators ought to be thinking about to sort of harness that energy. So in Virginia, we did so well last year for three reasons. One is because our voters and our folks were just more motivated to vote. And so one of our challenges is always trying to get people motivated and to protect that motivation and turn them out. So I'll talk a little bit about some different strategies we use there by demographic group. The second reason why we did as well as we did is because our vote was so consolidated so much earlier. People who said they were Democrats were voting for Democrats a lot earlier in the cycle, whereas in the past, those Democrats would drift back and forth for a little while. And then the third reason is because each of these races we really localized as much as possible because folks are feeling pretty good about the state of Virginia. So why would they change if they thought things were going in the right direction? So we had to localize these for our candidates um, and against uh, the other candidates uh, to make voters see that this Democrat is exceptional, exceptionally good, and this Republican is exceptionally bad. And so we honed in on those three issues and really figured out how to, how to talk to voters about it and how to really uh, protect that enthusiasm. And and so I guess uh, maybe we well, you should talk through a few examples because um, yeah. it's it, one thing that's interesting to me is just you know and this goes back to the 2016 election is you know is this is this about candidates or is this about mm-hmm. issues um, it seems like in Virginia is probably a mix of both right like the <coughs> the candidates totally. were interesting but also like you said the the issues were very localized do you think it was like kind of a perfect storm in that way in terms of the combination uh, I absolutely do. And I think it's uh, for a long time, I didn't think, and this is coming from a pollster who works with candidates, that candidates were as important as the other things that were happening mm-hmm. happening around us. But as progressives have learned lessons, we're learning more and more how important candidates are. What I mean by that is nominating candidates who look like the kinds of voters that vote for Democrats. So that means nominating younger voters because we need to turn out young people. Uh, we elected uh, the first mil- uh, first couple of millennials. Well, not the first couple, but we've elected some millennials last cycle. It means nominating women. As I said, we, I, uh, we elected 14 new women in two cycles. It means nominating uh, uh, lesbians, gay adults, transgender, African-Americans, Latinos. Um, so it means candidates are so important in that regard. And the way candidates can communicate, uh, if they look like the people that they're talking to, is so important because uh, authenticity uh, as you know, is so important. Do you believe what you're hearing from this person? Has mm-hmm. this person lived what you think that they're talking about? And so, you know, we talked a lot about justice reform in these campaigns. And <clears throat> we had candidates who were qualified. We had district attorneys who were qualified to talk about it. Um, but And they were trying to talk to African-American and Latino audiences. And they just had some lack of credibility on that line. Uh, but when we had African-American candidates talking about it, that level of authenticity is just so real. Now, it doesn't mean that Anglos can't talk about justice reform. And in fact, they should. Mm-hmm. But it just means the level of believability and I can trust this person is so important in some of these conversations and keeping it real 
um, was just uh, really important in these conversations and in this election cycle. Um, one example I'll give you, so when you think about sort of uh, communication and strategies is the Danica Rome um, campaign. Now, Danica was the first uh, outlet out transgender woman to win a legislative seat in America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was a out uh, transgender, there was a transgender woman uh, in, in the Northeast years ago, but she was outed. Uh, so Danica was the first one who was running as an out transgender woman. <clears throat> and what was really unique about Danica in this district, and she ran against uh, Bob Marshall as just a horrible person yeah. in the kind of legislature <laughs> he tried to, uh, the legislation he tried to pass from abortion to equality to gay rights, et cetera. Uh, one of our challenges with Danica, and when you say is it candidate or is it issues, this is the perfect sort of combination here. One of our challenges with Danica coming out out of the primary was that our Democrats were not as, mo- this is one of the one districts where our Democrats were not as motivated as Republicans. And so we really had to motivate those Democrats and make this an exceptional kind of race. And we came right out of the box with Danica being an exceptional candidate, with Danica being an um, uh, an open candidate who wanted to, you know, let everybody in as opposed to, um, you know, the sort of closed off candidate. So we use that, we use Danica's background and who she was and what she wanted to talk about to continue to energize these Democrats and lift these Democrats, uh, their motivation up in this district where it hadn't been before. The second thing that was really interesting about Danica is, Danica is, she was so, and she is, and rightly so, hyper focus on local issues and transportation. And when we were talking to her about the campaign, and remember I polled in 2015, and she said, the reason why you haven't won this race before, this district before, is because you're talking about the wrong issues. <coughs> we need to talk about local issues. And so she really raised the local issue around transportation. You know, she often said, you know, basically don't send me a piece of mail if it doesn't say Route 28 on it. Uh, don't send me a flyer if it doesn't say 28 on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so again, she really, localize those issues and, and elevate that conversation. But she made herself, uh, I mean, Danica was obviously these, these campaigns are so personal. Um, we really, uh, one of our key sort of communication strategies was to uh, really elevate. She made people feel good, uh, both mm-hmm. because she was so open and warm and honest and because she was so laser focused on local issues that she just made people feel good. And we wanted to capture that warmth, both in the television ads and in the mail. And in fact, one of those ads um, from Scott Kozar at the new media firm. It's just, you know, recently won an award. So I can talk mm-hmm. about that if, if you're interested in it. Nice. Yeah. Well, so in, yeah, we should get back to that. Cause I think in terms of tactics and, and content, you know, that's, that's helpful. Um, yeah. this sort of, um, I'm going to draw an analogy, which I don't know if is exactly correct, but in, in our last season of our podcast, we talked to a lot of people who said, you know, don't react to every tweet that President Trump sends or don't react to every terrible thing that your opponent does. And I think it's harder, you know, easier said than done. Um, but it seems like that's part of what was going on here to drive, drive the narrative proactively, right? And, and drive the narrative you want to see, not what other people are trying to push you toward. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, really good. You know, when we were on these campaigns and we have weekly calls and sometimes daily calls, you wouldn't think that we're, um, if you're on these campaigns, it would feel like we're reacting every single moment to everything everybody <laughs> says because we're so nervous about this happened. They went up with this television ad. They were at my door last night. My neighbor called me. <laughs> right, right. Those like of us so who have worked on campaigns, you, you, know, right. you know how it goes, right? But in, right. But what in fact what we're trying to do is always protect the brand. 
So one of my big issues for us as, as progressives is we've never, we don't do a good enough job de defining our brand and protecting it and then defining what the Republican brand is and making them own it. And so um, we want to be aware of everything that's happening, but not always react to it. Uh, and so we always made sure we were, we were identifying what is our brand and are we protecting it? And what is our core theory of this election? And are we always feeding that core theory? Um, and making sure all the communications that we're doing from paid to earned to our volunteers knocking at doors is always funneling up that way. So when we get news that uh, Bob Marshall is at the door saying these horrible things, we're preparing people to answer them uh, if they get asked about it. But only at that point, we're really preparing people uh, to go to these doors and have a conversation about the good things that we can do to inspire them to turn out. And that is ultimately another sort of key lesson for us in these 20 in these 2017 elections is the progressives had to be for something. It, you couldn't just be against Trump. And it was hard to be against the Republican legislature because people thought things were going OK. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Had, they had to know what you were for and believe that you believed in it. Um, and so that is, you know, we ran a lot of positive mail, a lot of positive television to let people know what these Democrats were for that you had an alternative. Now we had angry Democrats who just wanted to turn out and vote against Republicans and vote against Trump. But we had other Democrats who were, uh, you know, d disappointed, depressed in the current system. And we had to give them reasons to turn out. Mm -hmm. And I think what we learned here as well is that we just can't be anti-Trump. We have to be for something and define our agenda. And then we can say how Trump and the Republicans or the conservatives are harmful to that agenda, but they need to know what our agenda is. Yeah, and that, that's sort of related to another point you make in the LinkedIn article, which you touched on earlier, which is, um, and I think a lot of advocacy organizations who are listening or, or foundations are thinking about how they can do this. You say that Democratic candidates define themselves individually as exceptionally good and Republicans as exceptionally bad. I think it's hard for organizations to define themselves in, in ways that really dis, you know distinguish from the opposition. Um, what was the key on, on that point? Anything that you would point out there? Yeah, so <clears throat> I usually have um, a couple of rules when I talk to candidates and, and I try to make them applicable to the issue campaigns I work on. And one of those rules is <clears throat> that it's not that it's, it's sort of two rules. One is that it's not that people think that uh, they dislike uh, progressive candidates because we're liberal. They dislike us because they think we're weak. We don't stand up for things. We don't take tough stands. We don't defend our stands. And it doesn't mean we have to be always constantly have the most radical agenda. But when we have a position, we should take it and we should defend it. And we too often trade in on that agenda. And so I think one of our recommendations last cycle was to know who you are and know who you want and def and go with it and mm -hmm. don't backtrack mm -hmm. on it. And so and, you know, clearly define what those definitions are. The second issue I have is, uh, or the third role that I have, is that people like our progressive issues across the country, right? I mean, from marijuana legalization to raising minimum wage to mm -hmm. paid sick days uh, to uh, Medicare for all. They like these progressive issues, but they don't vote for our progressive candidates, or they hadn't yet. And so why was that? And that's because uh, we didn't define the contrast well enough and we didn't defend our brand. And so when I talk to folks about sort of what makes you exceptionally good. Um, and I think all this, as much as possible, should be research-driven. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, but really figuring out what do you stand for, define that brand, and then defend it at all costs. And um, that's what I think we did in these campaigns, is we defined our brand, 
we define theirs and we let voters make up their minds which you know which product do you want in that case or which brand do you like and uh, I, I think the other thing I always try to think about too is what's our um, what's our theory on this case was what you know the way I put it what's our theory on this which is um, if you're an advocacy organization what's your theory for your purpose why are you here what who are you serving what are you doing and then implement that and uh, you know defend it again I like to make things research driven. Um, but when you have it at that point is to really dig in and define that brand and defend it because I think that's what's core to our victories is people believing who we believing in our values and believing who we are but thinking they can trust us and that's why that brand has to be so uh, well defined and protected. And, and that, that kind of ties into the local angle too, right? You need to know not only what you stand for but then what's, what's relevant to the local people on the local level. Um, the second part of your LinkedIn um, series was about the specific issues and kind of the messages and obviously polling and, um, you know, research helps, helps define and drive those, those priorities. But were there any big message or content takeaways that you think might be relevant to, to other people thinking about communicating, you know, on, on behalf of progressive organizations? Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, I mean, there, there's issue things I think are going to, are, are going to stand out for a while, <laughs> which is healthcare. So I think if just if we're thinking about issues, healthcare is mm -hmm. going to be you know, a huge issue uh, the rest of the way. I think the, in terms of communication, the things that I learned the most about, or that I, try, I tend to focus the most on really are two things. And I'll start with one, which is the tone of what we're saying as progressive advocates and as you know, people who defend progressive candidates. Um, if you think about our, and this isn't universally true, every single state's different, et cetera. But what I found to be true in, in, in Arizona and Virginia and this data is that our, that our uh, older progressives are fed up. They're mad. They want to protect people. They want to stop things from happening. They're mad. They're angry. Uh, they feel it. Um, and they usually are the ones who turn out in elections. And they're usually the ones who donate to um, organizations. Um but our younger progressives and our progressives of color, our Latinos, our African-Americans, our Asian uh, progressives, they are, uh, they're not so much about sort of stopping bad things from happening. They're about making good things happen. And so as we think about our, the tone of our conversations, of course, we sort of have to make sure these folks stay frustrated and angry and channel that into voting or participating. But for our younger folks, our millennials that vote for progressives and our people of color, we have to reserve enough room to be positive and say, you can still make good things happen in this system. And so that's one of the big takeaways that I had in, from our initial sort of focus groups in last year's legislative work was the difference in tone between our sort of older feistier progressives and our younger sort of do good millennials is sort of, you can feed that anger, but you have to have room over here for these under for these millennials to feed hope and to give them something to vote for. And so that was, a, that, that was a, a big sort of message component, I think, that lots of organizations can learn from um, and probably are, are struggling with right now. Uh, and then the last point I'll make, which I don't have an answer to or trying to figure that answer, is Gen Z. Gen Z, very different than yeah. millennials. Very different than millennials. And the tone and, the, and, the, and the, you know, these Gen Z folks... Um, they like institutions, they respect institutions, and they're just disappointed that they're not there for them anymore. And that's really different than millennials. And so mm -hmm. as we think about strategic uh, communication strategies, how do you pull this together? How do we get our old, our older sector of progressives who are feisty and angry 
together with our millennials uh, and people of color who are want to do good things, plus these Gen Z folks who are just disappointed that everybody above them has just mm. destroyed everything that they need. And mm-hmm. so that's sort of uh, our ongoing struggle in terms of progressives holding this coalition together, because our coalition has many, many parts. Uh, right. The other side has a couple of parts. We have many, many parts. Yeah, and getting more complicated to keep them all together, right? Right, exactly right. So um, one of the things in the third part of your your series you talk about, and, and you know this is sort of something that I think a lot of people are struggling with, is the digital um, aspect of <coughs> yeah. um, communications and message. Um, and what you said, which is which is you know common to things I've seen over the years, is that there there's not um there's not a lot of on message digital it's not super coordinated um probably not read the right calls to action i mean there's a lot of um there's a lot of work that we need to do as <laughs> as you know progressives in general on yeah. on communications online what what were your big takeaways and what would you kind of suggest that people think about moving forward yeah so this is a big one <clears throat> and and thank you for asking it and it's um uh, I think the takeaway that the take from sort of like advocacy organizations versus candidates can be pretty different. So let me give you sort of a, a quick view of the candidates and how I think it might mm-hmm. uh, mean something for for everybody else. So which is because um, you said part of the problem, you know, and you, you 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 in terms of the article, I also made this sort of this critique is that um, there wasn't a great a great deal of coordination. In fact, in campaigns, you can't do a lot of coordination anyway, right? One side can't talk to the other because that's right. illegal. In Virginia, we could talk to anybody. There's no laws in Virginia uh, in that regard. It's the wild, wild west. <laughs> um, but what happened in Virginia is our incumbents had a digital program very, very early. And there were three that were in trouble, uh, that, that were challenged, uh, that could have been vulnerable. Our challengers, and there were 17 challengers, there were 17 Democrats who were running in districts that Hillary Clinton won, but had a Republican state, assembly, uh, state assemblyman. So those challengers didn't have uh, uh, a digital campaign component until later in the cycle. And so one of my big takeaways is we have to define our candidates earlier and digital is a quick, affordable way to do that. Um, The challenge is we don't have a lot of research early to do that. So as soon as we're out of the primary, these Republicans are defining themselves. Our candidates are not able to because we're waiting to get research. That's Mm -hmm. one of our ongoing challenges. The other piece about digital, though, is... The third parties, uh, these other grassroots organizations, were out there on digital, and they were running lots of good progressive message. They're also running some message that didn't work as well for Mm. us. Uh, So we had to have conversations where we could about sort of toning some of that down or pulling some of that back. And so we had to have a good conversation about that. Uh, You're facing this. uh, Part of the problem, uh, the challenge we have is what are we buying when we buy digital and what's working and what's not working? Mm -hmm. Or a long time, these campaigns have all been about mail, right? You can feel it. Uh, we know that as, the, the, as much time as you spend looking at the front of the mail piece corresponds to how much you spend looking at the back of the mail piece. We know people like people who look real. They don't like politicians. They like real people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We don't know as much about digital, honestly. We don't know how much digital is working. We don't know what they like about digital. Um, but we're buying more and more and more digital. Uh, and so... Um, I think we need to do some research and more about what's working on digital because we know what worked on mail, but how do we transfer that into what's working about digital? Hmm. And I think that is uh, an ongoing struggle for us because we're going to spend more on digital than we ever have, and we're going to continue to do that. 
but we're not as sure what we're buying and what we're getting and what it means. I mean, people come back and say, how many looks, how many opens, whatever, how many clicks. Um, it doesn't translate as well um, to folks. So we haven't learned as much about what that, what that really translates to in terms of votes, in terms of changing opinions, in terms of getting volunteers, in terms of activating somebody to pick up, uh, to, to send an email and say, I'll volunteer for you. And so we're, we're mm -hmm. learning more and more about it, but it was a real struggle for us. Yeah, well, hopefully we can continue to learn. And we've had a couple of people on this podcast who are digital sort of experts and continuing to try and get more people to share the learning. Of course, that's yeah. a big opportunity for us as a community is share what we learn with each other, right? Um, well, so so Josh, I don't want to keep you too long. And um, I know you've you've talked about a lot and, and you've you've written a lot about this. Is there anything that you would say um, that you would try to leave, you know, communicators with in terms of one in one specific insight or one idea that they should take to try and kind of, um, you know, improve their own communications over the next uh, several months? Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, I think it's sort of a combination of two, and I and I and we've hit on this a lot, so I, I won't take too much more uh, time and sort of honing in on it, which is just really. Uh, I think one of our challenges as as progressives out there is defining our brand and owning it and defending it uh, and really prosecuting that brand. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one one piece to keep in mind is is who we are and what are we there for. And this is different for every organization, but who are you? What are you there for? And um, you know, define that brand and defend it. And then the second is just tone. Tone is going to be so important the rest of the cycle here. Politics itself is so ugly and dirty. And, you know, the president contributes to it. Yeah. Uh, he enjoys it. He thinks it helps him. Um, but we've got uh, our voters, our voters who turn out in presidential years, but don't turn out in off years, uh, are folks who want to hear positive information. They want to hear reasons to vote for people or reasons to be part of something. So keep that tone in mind that we have to give people something to be for. And organizations, I think, have it a little easier, maybe easier is not quite the, quite the right word, but it feels more natural for them to be for something where candidates are always against something. So but to keep those two things in mind. What's your brand? Define it and defend it. And then um, that tone, have room to say positive things and to give people a reason to be part of what you want them to be part of. Awesome. That's cool. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing this all. And we'll link to the pieces you put together for LinkedIn, and, and hopefully we can keep the conversation going. Excellent. We're glad to be part of it, and thank you so much, RJ. And if uh, any questions or anything else like that, I would love to follow up, and I appreciate this. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to Achieve Great Things. Reach out to us on Twitter at HadawayCom, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Communications, or email us at podcast at Hadaway.com. We appreciate your support, and please keep the feedback and comments coming. Until next time, thanks again.